Hello and welcome to Science Shambles. Producer Trent here. This week's episode of the Science Shambles podcast was recorded live a few weeks ago at the Norwich Science Festival. It is a conversation between Helen Chersky and Professor Chris Lintot, uh, basically about everything that's been going on in the world of astronomy and astrophysics so far this year. So as it was a live event, uh, bear in mind there is one or two uh, moments where Chris refers to an image on the screen behind him and also during the end of the show we took some questions from the audience uh, which obviously weren't mic'd up. We didn't have a roving mic because of COVID so you will be able to ascertain what the audience questions were by context from Chris and Helen's answer or answers I should say. You can support the Science Shambles podcast at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles or you can come along to one of our big Christmas live shows. All profits from those do go to charity. Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People is at King's Place, December 10, 11, 17 and 18. Both Helen and Chris will be speaking at those events. And then Robin Ince and Brian Cox's Christmas Compendium of Reason is at the Royal Albert Hall on December 14th. Go to CosmicShambles.com to check out all the details for that. Thanks to our friends at the Norwich Science Festival for inviting us along for a number of events this year. And here is the show. Now it is time for the stars. So um, what we're going to be doing is talking generally about astronomy and various things that come up in that context. There will be time for questions for all of you. It will be a free-flowing conversation because those are the most interesting types so um you but you will have if you have a burning question in the middle do feel free to yell out i won't be able to see your hands in the dark but otherwise leave your uh, leave your questions to the end and we'll have time for them then so uh chris what does an astronomer do during lockdown does it change very much I think it changed in a, in a couple of ways i think the most interesting thing was that people became very aware of the sky early in, in, in lockdown because we had that wonderful run of clear weather. We were all sat at home staring out our windows and um, you know, people found themselves paying attention to, to things differently. I, I got very interested in trying to identify birds in the garden, which I never paid any attention to. <laughs> I love that idea. The astronomers were watching the birds, the ornithologists right, were yeah. watching the, you know, well, everyone's was, moved on one. Down exactly, the exactly. So people early in, in lockdown, there were interesting things happening. Um, one of them was that the star Betelgeuse, which people sometimes call Betelgeuse, which is um, in the constellation of Orion. Actually, the name translates as Orion's armpit, or armpit of the Great One. So gives you they, an had, idea they needed some marketing advice, these people, <laughs> didn't they? But it's this beautiful red star. It doesn't need, any, it doesn't need a grand name. Um, but it had faded. Um, and it faded over the course of, where were we, sort of December 2019, January 2020, and there were lots of comments that maybe this was a precursor to it going supernova, because at some point soon, and by soon I mean in the next million years or so, Betelgeuse will explode, and it will be this supernova bright enough to see in the, in the day sky. So people were very excited, but as lockdown started, it was slowly coming back to prominence. Um, and so we had um, Orion, which to my eyes looked very strange, coming back to, to looking normal. And I, I took a lot of solace from, from looking at that. My students were <laughs> stuck at home. They were supposed to be going to observatories all around the world and, and couldn't do that. Things were shut down. I've got one poor student, um, Tobias, who has had his observing run cancelled three times because of the pandemic, once because of a snowstorm, and most recently because of the volcano on La Palma. So, it's, just, uh, it's just trying a bit too hard. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what, who he's offended. Some kind or, of world record he's going for now. Yeah. Well, there was an astronomer recently who published an analysis of the fact that it tends to rain when he goes to observatories, and he proposed <laughs> himself as a, a solution to drought-filled regions of the world just by turning up and uh, trying has to Has it ever occurred to you that perhaps astronomers don't have enough to do? <laughs> well, we can't solve all the problems. Um, but, I, you know, essentially these days it's a, it's a game of sitting at a computer. So I did that, but from home instead of on track. And, and planes and so on. Um, and, and so the, and the telescopes kept going, so there was... Uh, it know. depends where you were. Things in Chile were pretty bad and, and shut down, and, and lots of the observatories were shut for a bit, but things reopened sort of last summer. And, and luckily, the period where everything was shut, we didn't have a bright supernova, we didn't have a new <laughs> comet, we were sort of hoping... The universe didn't go bang while no, we weren't the, looking. The universe cooperated. Or maybe you don't know, because you didn't see it. We didn't see anything bright and obvious. We didn't miss anything bright and obvious. There wasn't anything that we would have wanted to point all our telescopes at. But yeah, obviously we, we lost data and, and um, there'll be a gap 
there are some projects, particularly things like monitoring um, pulsars, these, these radio sources that pulse, some of those have been monitored for nearly 50 years, and there are gaps in that record now that won't, won't be filled because, because there was this weird period. Um, so earthly things do, do, do get in the way sometimes. But the universe is still there. <laughs> it's still expanding. I'm glad you've um, checked. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, let's talk, I mean, because I don't know, just out of interest, how you can sort of cheer or, uh, through your masks or something. How many people here would say they regularly look at the night sky or are astronomy enthusiasts? Oh, that's quite good, actually. We've, everyone's going to learn. That's good. Um, now, I could go around all the other questions, which, which end with, are you just here because somebody else wanted you to be and you don't want to be here? But we shan't embarrass those people because we're, we're happy to have everyone learn. Okay, but in that case, um, that, that helps a bit because uh, we can mention perhaps some of the things people might see yeah. in the sky if they um, want to have a look. Yeah, yeah though it's interesting because most of my colleagues wouldn't know what was in the night sky. So most <laughs> professional astronomers have, have never looked through a telescope. Uh, because you come into it from physics or, or math. So I remember particularly, um, I was at the, lucky enough to be a mission control when the Huygens probe, which is a European probe carried by NASA's Cassini uh, mission all the way to Saturn, and it landed on, on Saturn's moon Titan, which is this wonderful world with uh, a thick atmosphere that you can't see through, so you need to land on it to see, see what's there. And, and these people who'd built this probe over decades and sent it to Saturn and watched it land came out into the car park on their way home, and there were a couple of German amateur astronomers who bought a telescope <laughs> and pointed it at Saturn, and there was this long queue of people <laughs> who had sent a probe to this point of light in the sky and never thought to look at it. Um, and if you look at Saturn's visible tonight, so Jupiter and Saturn are really well placed in the evening sky at the minute. So if you're looking um, west after dusk at the minute, um, the bright thing is Jupiter, uh, and then as it gets a bit darker, the thing to the right of it, I think, at the minute, is, is Saturn. And Saturn, through, through binoculars or telescope, you can see the rings, and you can see the bright star next to it is Titan, this, this, this moon. So we've got those. Venus is around as well uh, in the evening sky. Uh, and if you're up in the morning, you've got um, the moon is, is particularly well-placed at the minute. It's rising slowly just because of where it is in the zodiac. So we're getting the, we had a beautiful full moon a few weeks ago few days ago, um, and, and it's still there in, in the morning sky. So um, I do think people should look up. I, I, I don't really mind whether you, you know the constellations or know your way around the sky, but I think a good habit to get into is to go outside, and as you step outside at night, look up and see whether it's clear. Notice the universe. Not for any scientific reason, really, but because I think it's good for us to pay attention to the cosmic neighborhood. It gives you that sense of time passing, of living on a planet that's spinning in, in this wonderful cosmos. And I, and I think you genuinely get that from noticing that the planets move and the seasons change and Betelgeuse fades and, and rises. Well, and I think there's, there's actually research on that. Uh, jo Marchant mentioned it in the book she just wrote about, I can't remember what it was called, but it was, it was about relation, our relationship with the stars. But I think there is actually, like, the sense of awe that you describe, mm. that actually makes people nicer. You know, if, if you show, and it could be that, it could be, like, nature, it could be a, but it has to be a mm. big, massive thing that makes you feel very small, but it's very, you know, that's a very grand view. And then there are studies showing that you, you know, those people, they'll offer someone a cup of tea, or like, you know, I'm not sure how long the effect lasts. But, but it's, it's like, it's comforting to know your place, and then you remember to be humble. Right, and I, I think I've often seen that written about, I haven't read Joe's book yet, I should do that, but it's often the scene we've got behind us is this beautiful ramp. Completely Which you may not see very often no. in UK. Well, exactly, it's say. a sort of gratuitous bit of What's the Southern Milky Way. This way? is the North American Nebula, because if you view it in a small telescope, it looks a bit like the shape of North America. But um, stars, gas clouds, dust, from which you can make planets and so on. But people get the sense, think about astronomy, and I think if you think about wanting to see the night sky, people want to go to a dark site, um, you know, the middle, middle of New Zealand, South Island or something, go, and it becomes a once-in-a-lifetime trip for people. People go uh, up on Exmoor or, or to the Norfolk Broads or, or, or wherever to get a properly dark sky. But I think you can get that sense of awe and wisdom from city astronomy, from noticing the changing phases of the moon, of noticing that the bright thing is Jupiter, which is a planet, um, and that it will move from, from month to month and week to week. Uh, I think that's enough to instill this sort of cosmic cosmic awe. Um, and, and we don't... T if you don't actively go about looking at those things, you don't experience that. So you need to look up when you go outside, notice it's cloudy, and then give up. But occasionally you get a clear sky and you can, you, you can experience awe wherever you are. 
Well, let's, let's have the rant now. I mean, both of us have many rants in us. And um, I was going to start on something positive, but, you know, let's have the rant. So one of the things that we have heard a little bit less about, you know, pandemics and things taking over the news, but CubeSats and Elon Musk and Starlink. And we both have our beef with this, basically, yeah. even though both of us are vegetarian. Um, what's, what's yours? Well, let, 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 let's do facts first. So, so it's become very cheap to launch satellites. Uh, it's particularly cheap to launch satellites if you own a rocket company. Um, it How turns very convenient. Out, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and so, you know, Musk has SpaceX. Um, and what they've done technologically is amazing. And, and I think it will change how people use and think about space. But mostly what, what those rockets are doing right now are launching um, communication satellites. And they have permission... Uh, it's an American company, so you get permission from the American federal authorities. They have permission to launch 40,000 CubeSats. Um, Which has gone up a lot. It sort of sneaked up, didn't it? It was yeah, 5,000, and then it sort of changed to 8,000, yeah. and it's, it's, been, they're already, it's been doubling. That's right. They're already yeah. the most common satellite is one of Elon Musk's. Because just, I mean, just I, the total number of satellites in orbit around Earth is something like 4,000? The I total number remember. of active ones, so not yeah. bits of thing or dead satellites, but right. the total number of active satellites about 4,000 of which about 1,000 uh, are Starlink satellites. And he has permission. That's to, for another 40,000. So 40, literally, 000. you know, that many, 10 right. times Right, and then Amazon exists. have plans called Project Kuiper, I think, which is, or, which is a similar size. That's another 40,000. And there's a company called OneWeb that the UK government has invested in, which is, gonna, is launching another 1,000. So the number of satellites in, in low Earth orbit will likely um, double. Uh, sorry, go up by, by, by several orders, of, a couple of orders of magnitude. And, and most of these are visible to the naked eye, but only just. So they won't be the brightest things in the sky. But if you go outside on a clear night in a dark sky, uh, an hour after sunset, you will see satellite after satellite after satellite go over. Um, and these things are visible. And there was a very, there, I mean, I think one of the, uh, not the one just gone, but the previous um, astronomy photo photography of the year, one mm. of the winning prizes, one of the winning, it was, a, it, was a, it was a star scene a bit like this, but it had these lines, it was a long exposure, yeah. and these, they were like bars of a prison, right. almost, yeah, across yeah. the sky. Yeah, so there's two pieces of this, so partly as a professional astronomer, you know, I'm working on projects like um, the Vera Rubin Observatory, which is a big survey of the sky with a, one of the biggest telescopes we've ever built. Um, we think that the cost to, to Rubin of extending the survey to cope with the fact that we're losing data because of these satellites is millions of dollars. So basically, uh, if there's a satellite in the way, you kind of have to look, the, the whole thing has to run for longer because you that's need right. more. That's right, yeah, 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 yeah. And some things you don't get back. So if you're looking for asteroids that might hit Earth, well, actually, that's the t you look in the twilight because they tend to come from, from the sun. That's where we discover near-Earth asteroids. And um, that's when the satellites are most visible. So, so we lose a lot of observing time. So, so there's this sort of cost to professional astronomy. The radio astronomers are, are upset as well because these things transmit. Um, but there's also this cost to our view of the night sky. What we see currently as a wilderness is going to get built over, essentially, by, by these constellations. And there will, there's enough of them. If you get to hundreds of thousands, there's a, there will always be enough of them, either just launch or coming back down, that they'll be bright. And so what humanity, everyone in the world, has always had the experience of being able to look at the, the night sky and in 20 years' time, five years' time maybe, we won't be able to have that experience without seeing Elon Musk's um, thing. And I, I just think, I, I don't understand how this is, well, if I, if I don't think about politics, I don't understand how this has been allowed to happen. It's, you well, know, that's we, my problem with it, is I think that the, the people who make these decisions took a technical decision. Are they going to hit anything? Are they going to interfere right. with anybody else's satellites? Are they going to cause trouble? They didn't look at the ethics of it. Right. And that's half, that's, that's the bit of the right. beef share. Like if, if, I, if, if I want to put wind turbines in the Lake District or, one, or, or something like that, to, to use, you know, we have a process. It may not always work perfectly, but where we talk about what the benefits and costs are and make some semblance of a democratic decision as to, as to what that is, there's no equivalent here. No one said, okay, what are you going to do with these satellites? Oh, look, you're going to make money. Um, and in exchange, we're getting, oh, nothing. So, you know, it's, it's really one-sided, and there's this... Well, to, to perhaps defend, what he says, what they often say is that they are offering, one of the things, one of the many things is that they are, aren't they offering communications to parts of Africa that don't so, have... That's right. You know, so that they, are, they do claim they have an ethical thing that they will... The, bring internet They do, but it turns... But it's a thin It turns out, well, and, and two of my, my friends have internet um, supplied by the Starlink network. 
But they live um, in large houses in rural, rural Hereford, for, Herefordshire, for example. That's the market. Um, it's the odd person in the wealthy world that can afford. It's 100 bucks a month currently. And yes, the cost will come down. But satellite, if you want to provide internet for a village, say, and you want to provide it for everyone in the village, satellite comms is a terrible way to do it because you can't have everyone in the village having their own link to the satellite. You can only communicate with a few. So um, there is a fundamental limit. What, it, what it's really about are things like high-frequency trading, because um, if you can get a message quickly from London... So we should, explain, we should explain the context here, which is that trading is obviously based on what's happening now and who gets there first. Right. So, and so if you literally have a piece of wire that gets you there first... Like, I mean, so they think the New York Stock Exchange has... It's got very, very fair wires, so everyone has the same length of wire right. between and, their terminal. But, pe but and people the stock pay exchange. a fortune to be at the place where the signals right. go into the stock exchange. Right. Yeah. But the so the idea is that if you have a quicker satellite link, you can That's right. bypass. All so it's about that. There are military applications on. You know, so so it's not this sort of greenwashed. Well, yes, I think if they were going to give everyone in the internet free in the world free internet, then okay, maybe that's worth desecrating the night sky, but to make money for, for an American corporation or a British one, I'm, I'm, le I'm less convinced. And I, I find it maddening that this conversation is happening now after permission has been granted. Yeah. Uh, that's the wrong way around. We should have, um, it's our failure. We should have seen this coming years ago. Well, I think people did, but it's like there's so many other problems. Who's going to invent a regulatory body for something that hasn't happened I, yet? It was just really slow, right? No, and I, also, I, it's I, an international thing, right? I Who don't, owns the night sky? I don't think we anticipated. So the, the, there are attempts now to get the UN to pass some rules. I don't think anyone anticipated the pace of change in how cheaply you can get stuff to orbit. So SpaceX... And so the point is the reusable rockets. That's what the reusable rockets made it. Space. Yeah, the fact that you can take these things off, they can land and they can take off again in a few weeks' time, and you reuse almost the entire rocket. That's something that people have dreamed of since the '60s, and no one had managed to achieve. And it's now routine for SpaceX. And the, so, therefore, and the fact that they're betting a large fraction of their company's future on spending money on the rockets to get the satellites up because they want to be the first. They think there's great advantage in being the first network. I think people failed to realise quite how quickly that was going to, going to move. It's only really the last few years that that's happened. And the landing, for anyone who is, you know, struggling, is having sort of insomnia or something, find videos of these rockets. Like, I don't know how many, how many of you seen these vertical landings. Never it's mind very satisfying. They land, like the thing comes back down and it lands on its end. And it is the most, in, I understand there's all kinds of engineering behind it, but it's, it's, it's mesmerizing because it, it, it's just, it's, it looks like science fiction. Well, it looks like they've reversed the tape. Yeah. It, it's so yeah, yeah. neat and, and, and satisfying. It's like watching a room being tidied or so, something. But it's also magical. really disconcerting because it's not supposed to happen. Like, I'm a great believer in technology, but it's so, like, all the things you can see going wrong. A little bit of wind, yeah. it wobbles a bit, you've got this very top everything that's going to go over. Well, they're and often landing so on ships in the ocean, on the right, ocean. Right, yeah, and the whole thing's moving. And yeah. you're just like, how are we really this good? And actually, if we're this good at this, how, how about we sort out, you know, climate change, the common cold, the economic system? Well, we could do all of those things, <laughs> yeah. But, but also, having invented that, what, what are we using it for? We could be launching cheap Earth observation satellites. We could yes. be, we could have yes. a, fl <laughs> you know, the Earth, as an astronomer, I'm prepared to concede the Earth is an interesting planet. Can so, I have that you in know. writing? Yeah, of course, no problem. Um, <laughs> but we could be launching cheap scientific missions or something, and instead we're, we're using it for, for commerce. So, so it's, it's so pretty So where is this going? Like, what are the, what are, uh, do astronomers have any levers in these in these? There's decisions? a very slow United Nations process. So, so the people have started pushing for there to be a global right to, to, to the night sky, which would then be considered when, when countries... But that's probably a 10-year process. So, and, and we can make some fixes. So there are people writing algorithms that will spot these satellite stripes in the telescope data. And to be fair to SpaceX, they've tried a few things to make the satellites um, fainter. They tried, not reflective, right? Yeah, they've yeah. tried some, yeah, I was going to say sophisticated strategies like painting them black, black yeah. um, <laughs> and uh, pointing the reflective bit away from the Earth. You know, there's a high-level engineering, this. <laughs> Um, and that's helped a bit, and if you can make them a bit fainter, it's easier to remove them, but you never get the data back. If I paint a black line across this picture, I never recover the stars that are behind it. I can just go and look again. So big projects will be fine. Smaller projects and observatory telescopes, it's going to be a big problem. And amateur uh, astrophotographers who take beautiful pictures of galaxies and nebulae and, and so on, I think are going to really struggle if we do get to the point when there's 40, 50, 60,000 
satellites up there. Yeah, I, I am, yes, I, I'm, I'm very cross with all of this. So I we've think. done the pandemic yeah. and we've done Starlink. Yeah. So. Okay, so let, well, let's, let's, let's take a slightly happier topic. So you are about to publish another book called Bang with two exclamation marks. Yes. So first of all, explain why there's two exclamation so, marks. So Bang was uh, the first book I ever worked on. It was this bizarre book that we, I did with uh, Patrick Moore. Um, we wrote it mostly in 2002 and... Um, uh, so a postdoc you may have heard of called Brian May, who also happens to be he know, name drops this one the, the lead the lead singer of Queen. Um, but it was it was a bizarre book because we Brian and I were blackmailed into, into writing it because Patrick wanted to do it, um, and then we said we didn't have time, and so Patrick wrote a draft in a week, and then threatened to publish that unless we sat with him and went through it. And we ended up sitting <laughs> around his table for a summer going through this text line by line. But the, the conceit is that Bang was a complete history of the universe. We called it a history of the universe, and the publishers added complete, which means all other books are not necessary, um, because everything should be in there. But it's quite a good idea, because you have cosmology at the beginning. You start with the Big Bang, and then, and then you, you sort of go on, and then interesting stuff happens, like galaxies form, and stars and planets, and so on. You end up in the depressing far future of the universe. So, so Bang 2, or Bang with two exclamation marks, we, we wanted to revise it. Um, and, and it was this fascinating process, because the first third of the book which deals with basically from the Big Bang to the point where stars have formed in normal-looking galaxies, more or less hasn't changed. The universe has got a bit older, both because it's been about 20 years since we wrote the book, but also because um, our measurements have been refined. So it's got about uh, 100 million years older, so update that number, that's fine. Um, and then the last third kind of hasn't changed. There's some great stuff about black holes I hope we'll, we'll talk about at some point. But the middle third, which is about planets, we had to throw out and start again. So we actually recruited Hannah Wakeford from Bristol, who's a, a brilliant exoplanetary person, to, to tell us this new story because there's this... And is that just because there's been so many new missions since then, or is it that we're better at the physics? What, what, so, where is all this stuff so, come so from? So there's two things that have happened. So the first thing is that... Our, our view of the galaxy has changed because we've learned that, that the universe loves making planets and that planets are really common. So if you do go out and look at the night sky and you look up, you should know that we think that almost all stars now have planets. Um, so when, yeah, when you look at this image behind us or any image of the night sky, this is a map of worlds. These are places we could explore. Now, we haven't found all the planets, but the statistics are such that we can say with, with some certainty that most stars have planets. And, and if, you're, you know, if you're a theorist, then maybe that's not, not surprising because you know, the physics and chemistry that made planets here must operate throughout the galaxy. Um, but it's nice to know that planets exist. So the first thing is that we found all, the, all of these planets. So we have new worlds to talk about. And some of them are bizarre, from um, Jupiter-sized planets that act like giant comets to planets made of diamonds to um, Earth, even some, some, some sort of Earth-like, although that's a, a reasonably contested term, planets. Um, but the, the other thing that's happened that I think, you, and if you read New Scientist, if you listen to, to podcasts, if you listen to Astronomers Talk, I think you know that story. People will know that we found, found these planets. But the bit of the story that hasn't really been told much in public is that those planets have completely changed what we think about our solar system as well. Um, we, we used to think that planet formation was a nice, stable, calm process. You know, in our solar system, you have the sun, you have the rocky planets, you've got Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, they're close to the star, then we have Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, further out, ga gassy planets. It's a nice regular order, we thought that would happen anyway. That pattern's not seen universally. We see big planets like Jupiter near, the, near, the, near their stars. We see planets on irregular orbits, we see planets interacting. And so we now think it's this chaotic process. And so in our solar system, um, there are good reasons to believe, for example, that Uranus and Neptune probably swapped places. Uh, at <laughs> well, some I know point. they're called, they were wanderers, right? The that's right, yeah, yeah, that's because they wander in the sky. No one was sky. expecting them to do it quite that uh, right. quickly. But, uh, it turns out that most solar systems probably eject planets out into, into, into the galaxy. So our solar system may have had a fifth giant planet. There may still have a fifth giant planet we haven't found. But there may also have been another planet that was sent out to wander amongst the stars. You make, you make the universe sound very careless. Oh, you know, we've popped a few out over there. We've lost... Where's, where's that yeah, no, I, no, I think, um, that, I think that's right. There's debris everywhere. Okay. There's a mess. You know, it's the leftover bricks. 99.9% .9 of the Kuiper Belt objects, the things that exist out where Pluto is, um, 
99.9% of those have probably been expelled into interstellar space. So what, but what, I mean, so what does that say? I mean, we know that life exists here, and there are many arguments about whether it's intelligent life, as Douglas Adams would you know, say. But, it's, but this, this organization that we have, does that say something about stability? The fact that we've got nice rocky planets, and then we've got nice big gas giants, and it's all sort of organized in relatively circular orbits and all that kind of stuff. So, is, is that a condition for stability which allows... Yeah, so, th so this is why I said sort of Earth-like planets is a controversial term, because um, in searching for these planets, one of the big goals is to try and find... Um, homes for life, right? We're, we're interested in... Because the octopus isn't good enough, apparently. No, anyway. no, we need other intelligences. The octo octop Octopuses are other intelligences. But they can, they fly starships. Well, if you gave one, I wouldn't, I wouldn't underestimate an octopus, mate. Octopus, All right, fine. Mate. Have you read... They, um, are, entirely, they Adrian, are entirely independently uh, involved intelligences. Have you read though? Adrian Tchaikovsky's Children of Ruin yet? It's no. a, a novel involving spacefaring octopus. Right, so you've made yeah. my point. Thank you. Good. Anyway, but, but we're interested in... Okay, so if you're interested in spacefaring cephalopods, we need to know how many worlds there are where they could exist. Um, so, so astronomers used to have quite a simple view of this. We used to say, okay, if it's an Earth-sized planet, then maybe it will have water on its surface. That's good enough. And then you start to think, well, it matters where Earth is. Um, so people often talk about needing to be in... Um, well, we, these days we call it the habitable zone, but it used to go by the name of the Goldilocks zone, right? The region around the star that's not too hot and not too cold, but is just right to have liquid water and, and, and maybe life. Um, but it, it, it's pretty clear that there are other things that you need, or maybe you need. So one, one of the suggestions is that if you have a giant planet like Jupiter and it careens through the inner solar system early in your solar then there's not much hope for any little Earth-like planet that's sitting here. And we think that these big planets do form out where Jupiter is now, and they, they come inward. So then you want to know, well, why didn't our Jupiter do that? But then, I mean, that implies... So, uh, you know, the sort of simple Kepler-type view of the world is you've got a big thing in the middle, and the, the Sun is, what, 99% of the mass of the solar yep, system that's or something right. like yep. that, right? And then you've got these things out there, and they're all, they're all doing their little circles, mm -hmm. and everyone's happy in those little circles. What is going to push a stonking great big thing like Jupiter out of its so, circular so, so, orbit? So the idea, the idea is that the, it, these are chaotic systems, so they interact with each other. So, so the, the current theory, and I think the details of this are probably wrong, but, but there are good reasons to, to believe. You know, this is the best idea we have, is that um, Jupiter and Saturn both formed slightly closer to the sun than they are now. Um, that's why, by the way, Mars is, is smaller than it should be. It's smaller than, than Venus and Earth, and that's because Jupiter hoovered up a lot of the material that would otherwise have gone, gone to Mars. And then Jupiter and Saturn happily orbited for a while, but found themselves in a resonant orbit so that they were lining up periodically, which, which gave Saturn a kick. So, so Saturn moves outwards. That causes Uranus and Neptune to swap over, and the whole thing causes chaos for, for, for a short amount of time. And, and then, then it settle settles down again. Right, exactly. So one thing you might point out is that when the Apollo astronauts went to the moon, they found evidence that lots of the lunar craters were formed, not right at the beginning when this, the moon was formed, but a little while later, maybe a billion years later. And, and people have suggested that late heavy bombardment, which is, is what it's called, might have happened when this shuffling of the planets happened. Now, if it happened then, I guess your point is, could it happen again? And in a chaotic system, then yes, it's possible that, that you might end up with some, you know, a passage of a nearby star or something could just tweak the gravitational maths a little. To, but the, to I guess the point is for life, so, you know, I, thinking about the stability of Earth, one of the things that has allowed life to exist is firstly that, you know, Earth might have you know, a few ice ages and stuff like that, but fundamentally, there's always been an ocean mm -hmm. which has nice, safe places at the bottom of it. And we the like ocean oceans, has, and yep. we like, Obviously, we like oceans, we're not biased. And, um, you know, and the ocean, the water itself acts as a buffer against mm. huge temperature changes. But if you thumped Earth with something, got rid of all its water, you've suddenly, at any point in that 4.5 billion years, you've suddenly got rid of the potential for intelligent right. life. And so it's not just that you need to have a planet, it's that you need to have a planet that's undisturbed. Right. So if all this chaos is normal, yeah. does that make us more special well, than we Well, that's before? one possible explanation for why we don't have obvious spacefaring cephalopods trying to talk to us. But people, can, you can add in um, the moon's presence keeps the Earth stable, so Mars... Uh, it has no large moon. It's only got a couple of piddly asteroidy things. Um, and so Mars wobbles on its axis on geological time. Aerological, I suppose, time? Whatever the Martian equivalent of geological time is. Um, 
the Earth doesn't do that because the Moon's there. So maybe if you want intelligent life, you need that. Jupiter staying where it is means that if a comet or something comes into the inner solar system, comes into the solar system from the, from the outer reaches, the most likely fate of a comet is that it will encounter Jupiter and either be whizzed out of the solar system or it'll hit Jupiter. That's so it's protecting it. Yeah, exactly. So it's a guard cos dog. Cosmic Hoover, I was going to say. But guard dog's <laughs> nicer, I think. Um, but yeah, so if you don't have a large Jupiter out there, and we don't know how common they are yet, um, then maybe you'd have a nice planet that looks like a perfectly sensible home for life that gets a dinosaur-sized impact. So the message I'm getting here is that basically all our parents who told us to tidy our bedrooms when we were kids were right. Like, if you, if you do the hoovering and you have a nice, tidy system, nothing is going to if, whoosh if you, out of the universe. If you want intelligent life. Thunk, thunk yeah. you, yeah. Uh, well, let's, is... let's perhaps move on to some of the other, because, I mean, we could probably talk about this question, but let's open it out to some of the other things we've learned about, because some upcoming missions. Mm. I mean, that's one of the things, it is in the nature of these things that they all take so long to actually get anywhere, that they launch, and then, so there's a lot going somewhere at any one time. So what's, what's out there that's not got there yet? Oh, to, well, I'm to really, actually look at some of these parts. I'm really excited about uh, a little probe called Lucy, um, which launched just, what, a couple of weeks ago, not, maybe not even, even that. Um, and, and this is a, an American probe that my colleague Carly Howitt from Oxford is, is involved in one of the camera systems. Um, and Lucy is, it's, oh, it's a proper explorer. It's going somewhere we've never been before. And that's always the most exciting thing. So it's going to a strange set of rocks called the Trojan asteroids. And these are... Um, Jupiter's companions. So they um, share Jupiter's orbit, but they they orbit the sun, not Jupiter. So if so, you, so there's a say if we've got the sun here. If the Jupiter's, sun's here, Jup Jupiter's somewhere, and these these other ones are sort yeah, of they're they're in clumps. The they're ring. sixty degrees ahead or behind Jupiter's orbit, which is a vaguely stable place for them to be. And so why we're interested in them is that we've never we know some of them are, are, the, are types of asteroid that we've never seen before. We don't even have any bits of them here on Earth from meteorites. And we also think they've been there since the early solar system. So they are uh, the leftover rubble from the time when the planets were assembling. And so if we're going to understand how Jupiter was put together and, and why we have these giant planets, then we need to find some pristine bits. And, and, that's and is what... it just Jupiter that's got these followers? And, or um, do, others, do others have them as well? I think it's just a Jovian thing because Jupiter's gravity is enough to dominate out there. If you're, I think if you're at that point in, say, trailing Saturn's orbit, I think you still have to worry about Jupiter, and so you get knocked out of your stable, stable position. Um, Earth has a couple of weird um, pseudo-moons, they're called. So you often see the press occasionally write a story about a new moon of Earth being discovered, and these are asteroids in sort of nearly Earth-like orbits that come and hang around for a bit and then tend to... to, to you make the again. universe sound very fickle, considering that this, there's this picture of, you know, sort of Keplerian, I kind of say, orbits, where things behave, you know, there's the radius and the speed, and, and they, they're very well behaved. And you're painting this picture of things just sort of... Oh, yeah, it's not like that at all. I mean, take the, ga take the galaxy, if we could scale out a bit. So you've probably... I don't know what you think of when I tell you to imagine a galaxy, but a nice big spiral galaxy. Um, you know, now Milky Way's a spiral, this nice ordered disk with spiral arms, and you maybe know that the sun travels around the centre of the galaxy in a cosmic year, which is, what, 225? We all, we all, it's the... Um What's not, was it a Monty Python song? Just remember that you're standing, uh, standing on a planet. Yeah, the this is how I remember the size of a galaxy. 100 miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But 225 Eric million years. Was, look it up. But anyway. Yeah, even astronomers sing that when I need to right. know the size <laughs> of the galaxy, I have to remind myself. Um, but um, so you think, well, maybe that's your nice stable. It's just a scale thing. Maybe it's chaos down at the level of planets, but maybe galaxies are nice and stable. And that turns out not to be true. So we have a satellite called Gaia which is mapping the nearest couple of billion stars. And it's telling us not just where they are in the sky, but how they're moving. And so suddenly we see that the disk has stars that are pinging up and down like, like this, in and out of the disk. Um, stars that are where the sun is, um, a third of them will have spent a lot of their lives much closer to the galactic center than they are now. So stars ping in and out because they interact with each other. And so why, why do we care about this? Well, it's helping us understand galaxies. But also, if you want a nice, stable Earth, um, if you get to the galactic center is a place where there is lots of star formation. The stars there are massive, and they go bang pretty quickly in supernovae. 
and that sends high-energy radiation and cosmic rays. So you don't want your nice life-bearing planet to stray too close to the centre. So there's so a Goldilocks zone for the galaxy That's as well, right, yeah, the basically. galactic Goldilocks zone, or galactic habitable zone, yeah. So I interrupted you talking about Lucy. I've just oh, no, 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 that's fine. Lucy. Yeah, yeah, no, so, so Lucy's just, the, just this amazing mission because it's a discovery mission. To go to something, at the minute, the best images we have of these asteroids with the biggest telescopes in the world show them as points of light. So it's a pixel, It's basically. a pixel. We know something about the shapes of them because people do this amazing thing, which is calculate that they, when one of these asteroids is going in front of a star, you can predict its shadow on the Earth. And the shadow on the Earth is usually maybe 100 metres across, and it moves quickly. So it's like an eclipse, but right. an eclipse of a faint star by a tiny asteroid. And if you can get a telescope to exactly the right place, and you can have a string of telescopes, then you get a sense of the shape of the thing. Wow. Um, so people, there's a jet-setting bunch of astronomers who are enjoying <laughs> flying around, and they've made, they will make predictions. But we don't know what we're going to find. So when, when, will, when will Lucy arrive? Um, so it gets to the, it's going to do a bit of a tour. So its first Trojan, I think, is 2026. And it's got a warm-up. It goes through the main asteroid belt, and it's going to fly past an asteroid called Donald Johnson. Um, and warm up by taking a picture of that. And it's Donald Johnson because he was the discoverer of the Lucy skeleton, which is one of the human ancestors, right. and the mission's named because it's So this is that, it's not Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. It's, oh, so it's, the fossil was named after Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Right. The mission okay. is named after the fossil because we're going hunting for fossils of the solar system. And, and the mission's going well, but it, it has these two solar panels that have to extend and we know that one of them hasn't extended properly. So the team are, team are working on that. But that will be really exciting. I think Lucy's great. Um, I think... And there was New Horizons. It sort of, so it went past... This is, is this the one that went past Pluto? Pluto, that's yeah. right. And yeah. then it's carried on. Yeah, so, so New Horizons, I mean... The, I mean, we were talking about planets and Pluto's been demoted, but... But that doesn't mean on. it's not interesting. <laughs> People think we demoted Pluto because we thought it was boring, and that was never the case. Um, Pluto turns out to be this amazing world. It's got ice mountain, water ice mountains. You could, like, you, it, it's cold enough. You could do ge geology with water ice, which is just cool. That's pretty cool. Um, and it, it's also got regions. If you remember in the New Horizons image, there was this heart-shaped region, which yes. is now called Sputnik Planeta. Um, but that appears to have no craters on it, which means that there's some so something's happening. It's very new. Yeah. So it's the, sort of like a slush puppy, like there's an internal heat source from something, maybe even an ocean underneath. So Pluto may be an ocean world and have a water, liquid water Cheer ocean. Me up. No, so, so New Horizons oh, yeah, took those but, pictures but, and yeah, then that's it right. And then on. carried on. Yes, it was a flyby mission. Um, and then it's now exploring the Kuiper Belt. So um, Pluto is, is in some sense a weird member of the, this, this sort of outer asteroid belt that our solar system has. And so New Horizons, it flew past uh, a world that ended up being called Arrakath um, in 2019, New Straight Year's Day. Straight out of a sci-fi novel. Yeah, that, it sounds, it? yeah, you can imagine um, getting killed by Arrakath, yeah. you know, with, <laughs> with a trident or something. Um, but that turned out to be this sort of snowman shape. Um, so, so it was two smaller bodies that appeared to have collided slowly. And the fact that there are these double things is part of the evidence for what I said earlier, that most of these things have been ejected. But now it's happily trundling out into interstellar space, but it's, it's being an observatory. So it's flying not very close to Kuiper Belt objects, maybe um, you know, hundreds of thousands of kilometres, but that's a lot closer than we are, because we're hundreds of millions of miles away. So we're getting quite nice little images of, from the And how the far out is it? Because, you know, the, the things that people have heard of that have gone out into the solar system, the Voyagers. Yeah. So compared with where the Voyagers are, where is, so where is New Horizons going So it's not quite as far to? as the Voyagers. Is it going yeah. faster? Will it overtake them? Uh, or is it, it overtakes, I think it ends up third in the list. Okay. So the fastest ones, I think, are indeed the Voyager probes. Then there's the Pioneers. I think New Horizons overtakes the Pioneers, but not the Voyagers. But it's still in our solar system. So the thing that happened recently was that the Voyagers passed... Um, there were several definitions of this, but the Voyagers went out of um, the solar system. So it, basically they passed into a region where the dominant force isn't necessarily the sun. So they can sense the galactic magnetic field. 
Um, and that was very exciting to understand what the edge of the sun is. So just outside the, what is called, I mean, the atmosphere of the sun is a weird phrase, isn't it? But the, are we talking about the influence of cosmic rays? Like, what is the, the bound, what's, what's over here and not over there? If you yeah. get to that boundary, what's on one side and well, isn't on the other well, side? Well, one of the things, as ever, with, with exploration is that it turned out to be pretty complicated. That right. So the idea was that, if you've seen the diagram, you have the sun's magnetic field, which forms these bubbles. Inside, we feel the solar wind, but we're more or less protected from low-energy cosmic rays, mm -hmm. particles that travel through the galaxy. And when you go outside, you feel the galactic magnetic field and you see, you see the particles from other stars and other, other systems. Um, but it turned out that there was, I, uh, the poetry of this is, is, is nice because it turned out that that boundary region was complicated. It sort of, Voyager seemed to be in and then out and then in and then, then out. And what people now think is happening, Lucy, Lucy Green from, from, from UCL told me about this, was that we see these solar flares. The sun has these explosions of, of material that head out into, into the solar system. What's a, it's a you know, million tons of matter moving at a million miles an hour out into the solar system. But these apparently build up on the edge. So what, oh, what they accumulate. Yeah, so, so what Voyager was flying through was like a, a very thin foam of material that's left over from, from these, the, the, these particles. So basically what you're saying is the universe is full of mess. Yes. One yeah, I like that this is what you're taking, but isn't that fun? <laughs> it is much more interesting, I think, than the <laughs> traditional view of astronomy. It's just interesting how much, how delicate this is, and yet that we can see these structures, yeah, I mean, I, considering I, how far away And I think are. this comes back to sort of what I was saying about cosmology not having changed as much. And in part, that's because of the beauty of the, the elegance of the subject. Like, a cosmologist is somebody who wants to describe the universe on a pa single page of equations, right, ideally. Oh, actually, to be fair, a cosmologist is somebody who wants to describe the, the universe on a single blackboard of equations, because, you know, <laughs> it's all about chalk and, and, and so on. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, we have big changes in our understanding, and there, there are definitely things that we don't know about the universe at that level of description. We don't know what it's made of. We don't know what most of the matter in the universe is. We don't know what the most dominant force is, uh, and, and so on. But to, to get that right, you have to understand fundamental physics and not a lot else. To understand planet formation, you need to understand cosmology, you need to understand gravity. You need to understand the physics of star formation. You need to understand stars. You need to understand nuclear physics, because that powers the stars, and be able to do the calculations when they explode, because that provides the raw material for future stars. Then you need some chemistry, because that controls the Oh, you're just discovering what formation. it's like to be an Earth scientist. No, no, well, exactly. But no, I mean, it, it's, it's great fun, <laughs> and it's enjoyable. You, you could go on all the way down the list. So, yeah. so this is the point. I think it's astronomy as a, a messy science. Um, it's, it's finally become messy after all, because the people I know, I did not, the reason I, one of the many reasons I did not become an astronomer was it wasn't messy enough to be interesting. But I think this is, this, I think um, this is because you've been hanging out with the physics end of... of, of no, it's of, because of, I'm hanging out with the planet, which is even more messy than that. No, 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 but when you say astronomy wasn't, this is, I, I think that perception of astronomy is because yeah. what we tend to talk about is it's cosmology. Right, yeah. and we talk about here's the equation that describes the the expansion yeah. of the universe and isn't it a beautiful equation and it only has three terms or, or whatever yeah. not um <laughs> you know my kind of astronomy is we have spotted a thing where on earth did it come from Why well did let's, it let's come to let's come to a different way of seeing things because one of the experiments that has been running in the background um i visited i'm sure you've visited it is ligo mm. so and and that's you know it made a big i remember the the morning you know when when the first discovery came along how big a deal, because it was only the third way we had of seeing the universe. There's light, there's neutrons, and then there's what LIGO can see. So just tell us what LIGO is and where it's got to now. Sure, so, so, so LIGO, so I haven't been to LIGO, I've been to, to Virgo, but there's the, the, which is a European version, but there are, there are now these detectors that are capable of detecting ripples in space, um, which sounds like a crazy thing um, to do, but these ripples are called gravitational waves. And they happen whenever anything massive moves in the universe. So we should so. say here that it's not that, you know, when you have a wave traveling across the ocean and it's sort of traveling through a thing, like through, through stuff that is in space. But if you have a grid, the grid stays the same. This is like a ripple in the grid yeah, of where everything exactly. is. Exactly. It's, it's a bit more like, a, I, I guess a sound wave is a, a bit of a better analogy. If I hit the end of that table, then, then a vibration travels through the table. And it's that... That sort sort of thing. Um, so 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 yeah. So so this happens whenever anything massive moves. So in theory, I can create a gravitational wave by doing that. Right. It's just that space is really stiff. So you have to hit it really hard to make even the tiniest wave. And so 
Um, LIGO, the problem with trying to do this, and, and the team that did it worked for 30 years without detecting anything, right. because they knew they needed to measure um, vibrations that were smaller than the size of an atomic so nucleus. So perhaps you should just explain how this thing works, this interferometer, because it's got the, the yeah, two got sort of right hand. Let's, let's put a picture. Because it is, I think if you, if you see the experiment, it's a bit easier to understand how delicate the thing it's doing is. Here we go. Here we go, yes, right. So, so these arms are a couple of, this is actually Virgo, which is the European one, but so these arms are a couple of kilometers long, right? So they stretch all the way down there and all the way up here. And this is where, the, the ends are basically mirrors, right? And right. then all the... The really delicate stuff is in here. So, well, will you explain? You're the sure. Well, what you do is, is, is it, it's quite a simple experiment, except that it's principle. really difficult. Yeah. <laughs> so, what you do is you take a beam of laser light and you fire it, you split it and fire it off down these tubes. Yeah. So that it hits. So you take them. the same, exactly the same thing, and you split it. So you've yeah. got two twins. Exactly. Twin moving, moving at the same speed. They're moving yeah. at the speed of light at right angles, and they go two kilometers down there, and they hit a mirror and come all the way back and everything else being equal, they should arrive back at your detector at exactly the same time. Right. Because these, these things are measured so that they're exactly the same length to insane precision. So within like wavelengths of light. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Much less than that, yeah. Exactly. So that, that's, in normal times, that's what happens. Now, if for some reason, for now, one of these uh, tubes is slightly longer than the other, then the, the light washes out, it hits the mirrors and it comes back, but one arm will arrive back before the other. And that tells you that something has happened. It's that signature that tells you a gravitational wave has passed So the in. idea is that you, you insulate these things so there are no rumbling lorries nearby, there's no like earthquakes. You, know, you, you strip out every single thing that could possibly be moving on space, if you like. Right. And the only thing left is that space itself has changed That's size. Right. Yeah, and that actually, the other thing that you could do is you could predict what kind of things in the universe might cause these gravitational waves, and then you know what that will look like. So there's a particular form of stretch pattern of waves, and then you go looking for those. So in order, so what we're talking about here is is a very is a very very delicate thing, and the things that cause this are not on Earth, and no. therefore they must be a very long way away, and therefore in order to make a detectable signal, they must be very, very big. That's right, yeah. So, so the, they have to be very massive, actually. And so, the, so you need to start find, think about things in the universe that are very massive and move very fast. And the most obvious ones of these turn out to be when two large black holes uh, collide with each other. So it turns out that if you have two black holes and they're close to each other, there, and, and it's quite easy to set that up because if you have two massive stars that come to the end of their lives, they will produce two black holes. Then um, they will send these ripples out into the cosmos. And that takes energy away. So actually the black holes spiral in and they start to move faster and faster and they give out more uh, gravitational waves and, and stronger gravitational waves. And so the last few seconds of that process is what we create during that... The, the, what, what we see with these detectors. So I could sort of show you that. Um, so here's a computer simulation. So we, here we are. Down here are your here. two black holes, yes. yes and so the, the green yellow, is the gravitational yeah. wave. So this is a supercomputer simulation. So they're losing energy, and so they get faster and faster. And what you'll see is that the waves become more obvious. They're brighter in here. They're, their amplitude is larger in, in reality. And they're coming more frequently now. So we have a wave that, that's becoming more frequent. Well, you can actually translate that into sound because that's just a change in pitch. They go and they merge and you form one big black hole and there's what's called the, the ring down uh, at the end. So I've got the actual signal as detected um, by LIGO translated into sound. So this is the first one. The first one this is the very first one, yeah, exactly. And, and we, I think when I press play, you'll hear it um, changed in frequency so that it's easier to hear and then it will play the, the real thing. So... Uh, let, let's have a listen. Um, and that's the real thing. So they, so that little whoop yeah, they describe the end, it as a bit. chirp, right? And the yeah. properties of the black hole are encoded in that chirp. So the mass of the black holes changes that chirp, and how quickly they're merging uh, is encoded in that chirp. Now, there's two of these. 
And that's because this is such a difficult experiment, you do it more than once in two different places. So this was the same event in the universe, that's but it's right. been detected at yeah, two yeah, different places. Yeah, exactly. So now we have the, these detections of, of black holes merging. We've seen um, smaller objects called neutron stars merging. And there was this amazing event where we saw gravitational waves, but we also saw a distant galaxy suddenly gained a new star. So a new source, and that was the light from the collision of two neutron stars. And we'd set the gravitational wave from the same event. So the first piece of physics you could do with that is, um, is amazing, because you can now measure the speed of gravity. Because we know <laughs> the speed of light, and it turns out that gravity travels to one part in a couple of million accuracy at the same speed as light. Which is light. reassuring, right? It's what because relativity it's says, what says should relativity be true. Says it should, yeah. But how cool to be able to, to yeah. test that. So uh, um, we are running out of time for questions, and I want to give the audience time to ask questions. Uh, so could we bring the house lights up, please? Uh, or maybe not. Or maybe the audience can shout from the darkness and pretend to be... Um, I think we could just, um, just about see them, maybe. Uh, so has any... I mean, as you can probably tell, we can keep talking for a bit. Has anyone got a question? It can be about any of the things we've discussed or anything else, more or less, to do with the night sky. Uh, yes, out the back there. Got it. Yeah, so, so shall I just... Begin at the beginning with what yeah. the Drake equation so, is. So the Fermi paradox is just this idea that if life is common in the universe, where are they? Why haven't we detected aliens yet? Um, and there are many, many possible explanations which you can encode in what's called the Drake equation. So the Drake equation is uh, a way of working out how many alien civilizations you should expect. So you take the number of stars in the galaxy... You work out what fraction of those have planets. You work out what fraction of those have planets that life could exist on. Then you work out the fraction of those that do have life, fraction of those that would involve intelligent life, the fraction of those that are alive at any one time, and then the odds of detecting it. So you, it's a way of encoding ignorance. But, but I, I like to think of it as this. I think the problem of where the aliens are used to be an astronomer's problem because the biggest unknown was what kind of planets exist. Are planets common? We now know that planets are common, and uh, we're still checking and, and doing the work, but we, we think there are probably 5 billion Earth-like planets, Earth-sized, possibly water-bearing at the right temperature, in our galaxy alone. And there are 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. So we've given you a lot of Earth. So now, I think the biggest unknown is biological. So I think of it as a biologist problem, because we don't know... If I give you an Earth-like planet with complex chemistry and a nice stable environment and a Jupiter to hoover up things, and hey, we'll throw in a moon as well, I can't, no one can tell you what the odds of life starting on such a world are or what the odds of life producing intelligence is. So it's a biologist problem. Now, if we ever solve those problems, I think it becomes a sort of sociological problem because then it's why aren't they talking to us? Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, the, yeah, so the, the, I think the, the only thing I'd say is that I, I would like to find a way that makes the Earth special as a planet. So let's say we, we may discover in the next 10 years that moons like ours are rare or that Jupiters like our Jupiter are rare. Uh, uh, what's nice about that is it means we might have already done the hard bit. Right, we may have already we've we've won the cosmic lottery. We've got a planet on which we could exist, and now we can think about our future. If it turns out the Earth is just a bog standard planet, and there are loads of those, then you start to think about explanations like, well, maybe civilizations always destroy themselves quite quickly, or quite quickly. In which case, the hard bit's still to come. And I, I'd much rather think that we have a glorious Star Trek esque future ahead. Um, than, than rather, one than, rather than being another bug in the uh, petri dish, which is going to wipe itself right, out from exactly. climate change, yeah. um, and then, then, then of course you could get creative. So I invite all of you to to, to sit in a, a pub at some point in the next few weeks and come up with your own solution to Fermi paradox. My favourite is uh, called the national park hypothesis, which is that as a primitive species we're to be kept alone, and they are actually out there keeping an eye on us until we grow up a bit. But in the meantime, we're a nice tourist attraction. Um, <laughs> That's one of the more reassuring ones. Okay, <laughs> anybody else got any speculations on the universe, what you can see in the night sky, what there is to see on other planets, what we haven't found on other planets, what we haven't found on the moon? Yeah, there's one just there. Down uh, there. Yes. Yeah, no, no. It's a, so so the, I, I, I think I can remember the, the, the particular example that you're talking about. This was um, what's, called, what's called a fast radio burst. So these are these mysterious bursts of radio waves that we've started finding. Um, so... so 
Um, we don't know what causes them. We, we think they're likely some sort of exploding star, but we, but we don't know. Um, now, in, in terms of time scale, so, so usually the number that's quoted in those things is the travel time. So um, the kind of galaxy that we find those in might be, might be far enough away that the light will have, or the radio waves in this case, will have taken nearly 9 billion years to reach us. And that, that's fine. The universe is 13.8 billion years old. So that means that that light was emitted a third of the way when the universe was at uh, a third of its current age. So that's fine. If you ask where that galaxy is now, then of course it's much, much further away because the universe has been expanding. And then things get complicated. But I, I so that's why I like to talk about how long it's taken the light to reach us. And then, then I think that makes sense. But the, these fast radio burst things are, are fascinating. We know... Um, they're very quick. Um, they appear to jump around in frequency. Um, we know that sometimes they repeat. So in some galaxies, we see them happen again and again and again, um, but not always. Um, and and we, we're really not sure what, what, what they are. And it's great fun to have an it's exploration again. We've got an object where we don't know. And astronomers have suggested pretty much everything from colliding neutron stars, colliding black holes, exploding supernovae to alien spacecraft, uh, you know, people, it, who knows, it, could, it could, be, could be any of these things, and we'll only find out by trying to find more of them. Uh, and by keeping our civilization long enough, alive that's right. long enough, yeah. for another one to come our way. And, and funding astronomers, of course, which is All the, the definition of civilization. Is that more or less important than the survival <laughs> of civilization? Anyway, any more other questions, things you've seen in the sky, things you'd like to see in the sky? Not sure I can see hands here. Oh, We've terrified you all. <laughs> yeah. um, I've, got, I've got something that I, I thought I, I will bring up while I remember, which is that there was a thing, I think, it was, was it before one of the lockdowns? There was an object that passed through, something that people thought was a spaceship. Oh, this is... The giant, yeah, yeah that thing. Oumuamua. That thing, yes. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. tell us briefly about that. I've just been writing a paper about Oumuamua. <laughs> I'm quite excited. So this, yeah, so this well, is... Well, you a, can pronounce this it. Is more, this is more of your, your uh, universe as a mess, really. So... So Oumuamua, well, first of all, it was discovered with a telescope in Hawaii. So it was given a Hawaiian name. And Hawaiian has the wonderful property that if you want to emphasize something, you just repeat it. So the Muamua means uh, very, very far away. Oumuamua is the scout from very far away. So it was the first object we've ever seen passing through the solar system that came from another solar system. Um, and what was really strange about it was that it turned out to be Weird, like not like anything we have in our solar system. So it turned out. <laughs> It'd be disappointing if a thing arrived from another galaxy. No, we'd still have been and excited. And it was like you know a fruit scone and a you know and a, a cup of Yorkshire tea. <laughs> well, <laughs> if okay, you want, no, I, it's I supposed see, to be weird. I can it's see that. That, that. That's a bit like discovering other planets. I don't want them to be Earth-like. I want them to be weird. So I agree. But Oumuamua turned out to be um, a cigar shape, at least twenty times longer than than it is wide. It turned out to be tumbling end over end. Um, it was supposed to be a comet, but it didn't develop a tail at any point. Is this point. just that someone's thrown a stick for a cosmic dog, it did, it did and the dog at, is coming along yeah, behind yeah, yeah. it? That'd be a great science fiction yeah. story. It looked actually disturbing. There's an Arthur C. Clarke story called Rendezvous with Rama. Actually, is it Clarke or Asimov? It's one of the two. Damn it. Um, let's go with Clarke. Called Rendezvous with Rama, with they almost identify, like exact properties, and it turns out to be an alien spaceship. Um, so, so Oumuamua was this weird thing that came through, and we only spotted it when it was already leaving the solar system. And so we've managed to take some pictures of it, but it's just a point of light, and, and we've had to infer what it is. Um, so so this, this is a weird thing. We've got a second interstellar object. There was a thing called Borisov, Comet Borisov, uh, that appeared a few years later, and that was a much more normal comet, but again was an interstellar object. So we're beginning to find these things, and they're... I'm very excited about them because they, each one tells us about conditions in another solar system. It tells us about the number of them will tell us how chaotic things are. What they're made of will tell us about how other planets are assembled. So one of the things I'm most looking forward to in the next few years is finding more of these things. Um, and, and then, you know, at the minute we've got two, they had two different properties. So even astronomers can't conclude much. Two from data two, points. Two data points and they're there different. There will be a way to connect them with a straight line. Well, we I'm could call sure. them type one and type two. Right. Um, but then we'll find a third one that won't fit. But we need more of these things. And it, it, it's a sign that as we're... These things are common, we think. 
The theory says that there should always be one of them inside the orbit of Neptune. So there's almost always one of these things passing through the solar system. We're not finding We're not looking closely enough yet. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we found two ever. So it gives you an idea of how little we know even about our own backyard. Um, well, Douglas, it's Douglas Adams, right? He said space is big, mind-bogglingly big, and then it went on for yeah, a bit. Yeah, you won't, won't even believe how big space how is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I will leave you all with that thought. The space is very big, so it's a profound thought. You can all go out and look at the night sky and consider how big it is. But before you do that, uh, I'm going to just quickly remind you that... Uh, the Science Shambles podcast, which this will be part of, there's one of those every week. So do look at the Cosmic Shambles websites for all of that. Events next Saturday, uh, Dean Burnett and Adam and Hannah will be doing their show. And so there's lots of fun things for you to get out there above, beyond astronomy. But before you go and think about all of those, please join me in thinking our fabulous guest, uh, Chris Lintox. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening. Remember, Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People at King's Place in London is coming up, as is Compendium at the Royal Albert Hall, December 14. Support the show at Patreon, patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Rate, review, like, five stars, all that business on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Have a great week and take care. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.